We're going to spend some time in the New Testament in the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is our final message in this series. And um, this fall, I'm going to start a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So we're looking forward to that. I certainly am looking forward to that. It's, it's hopefully going to be a blessing to you. Well, when you look at the church around the world, you know that there are certain realities that mark the church. We talk about the church, but depending on what church you go to, there's, there's some differences out there. There's different denominations. Within churches, there are different structures. There are diverse liturgies, orders of worship, different ways of posturing yourself in worship. Uh, there are different doctrines among churches. There are different historical, uh, regional histories among churches, different leadership personalities and various varied cultural challenges. The things that the church, let's say, in China are facing are different than maybe the church in Australia. So the Church of Jesus Christ is a global body. Of course, there are those that call themselves the church that aren't part of the true church because they're characterized by false teaching. They've denied Jesus Christ and so forth. But the true church is nevertheless a diverse body. And for many, this diversity is a discouragement. They're like, why isn't the church the same? Why, why aren't we all kind of in agreement on everything? And it kind of bums a lot of people out. It doesn't bum me out. It motivates me to learn. It motivates me to, to turn back to the word of God and to evaluate, are my perspectives on church biblical? Or did I just inherit them from someone else? Or did I just dream them up? The church has gone through major periods of reformation, notably in the 16th century. But at the same time, the church should always be reforming itself, should always be analyzing and assessing, is this the right way? Is this the correct message? Are we functioning in a way that is in accordance with scripture? And the way that you arrive at that is not by getting a bunch of people together in a room and voting on it. The way you purify and reform the church is consistently by returning to the word of God. Because the word of God provides us with all of the, all of the things we need in order to be informed, in order to evaluate, and in order to conform to the word of God. And we know that the Bible is silent on many things. The Bible doesn't tell you what color the carpet should be in your church, what you should wear to church, the size of your building, whether you should have a building or not. It doesn't dictate how, how you should precisely sing or in what style or what instruments are allowed on the stage or these sorts of things. The Bible's silent on many things, but it does offer some clear protocols and practices in other areas. And we must follow these protocols and practices even if we don't like them. Even if they're different than our personal ecclesiastical histories, even if they're somewhat strange, we must follow the principles and practices of the word of God if we are going to build up the body of Christ to the max. So this is what we're going to look at today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28. Here we have several biblical protocols that govern church life. And the goal, of course, is for the edification of God's people, meaning the building up of the body, and ultimately for what? The glory of God, because the mission of God is in fact the glory of God. So how can we bless each other? How can we build each other up? How can we strengthen the church? Here's the first thing. We need to have a proper 
treatment of leadership. Proper treatment of leadership is the first thing that we see in this passage. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13 to get ourselves going. Here's what the Bible says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, if you were to do a little survey of churches you're familiar with, and you were to say to the people in the church, what would be one word that would describe your understanding of biblical leadership? You would probably hear a whole variety of answers. I've heard churches, rightly or wrongly, positively or negatively, describe their leaders as dictators, as social workers, as CEOs, as slaves in the sense of like servants that are under the authority of everyone else in the church, as employees of a corporation, as professionals. Some treat their leaders as pushovers. Some treat their leaders as if they're the Messiah himself. There's a lot of diverse opinions about leadership in the church. But fortunately, I don't have to dream up in my own mind what it means to be a leader. The Bible is very clear that God has appointed some to lead his church. And there are several words here that describe the work of leaders. You can see them in the text. There's the word among, over, the word admonish, and the word work. These are all important words. Leaders are among God's people. So that means that they are in the midst of God's people. They're not separate from the church. They're not some other class of Christian. Good spiritual leaders live their lives in and among the people of God. They understand that first and foremost, they're disciples just like everyone else is. At the same time, the Bible is clear that leaders are over the church meaning that good leaders exercise authority over the church. The word here means to stand over. That's an authority word. We live in a culture that doesn't like authority. Too bad. I am a spiritual authority over your life. I'm not going to apologize for that and make it hard for the next generation of leaders. I'm not going to let you treat me like an employee of the church, some paid expert of the church. I'm not a professional. I'm not a CEO. I am, along with the elders and other appointed leaders, over the church. That's what the Bible says. And if the Bible says it, we don't apologize for what the Bible says. The Bible also says that leaders are to admonish God's people. So when you get up and preach, you don't just stand up here and say, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, this is what the Bible says. Oh, look at this Greek word. Isn't that interesting? Let's close in prayer. That's not biblical preaching. Biblical preaching helps people to understand the word of God, but biblical preaching also admonishes God's people, corrects God's people, points God's people in a proper direction. And fourth, good leaders work among the people of God. Now, what's interesting about spiritual work, the work of the ministry, and all of you who serve in Christian ministry understand this, is it's not the same as like building something. So I like construction. I like all aspects of construction. I've done plumbing and electrical and framing and bricklaying and roofing and drywall and painting and the whole nine yards. Done all that stuff. 
And I like it because you, know, you, you bring your materials and you bring your tools and you put them all together and you stand back and you have something to look at. It's measurable. Ministry's not like that. Sometimes people say, what, that are interested in my week, like, what do you actually do? And I have to sort of think about that. What do I do? <laughs> There's so many different aspects to ministry. I, I wrote down a list of words that uh, define the nature of Christian ministry. Christian ministry is an admixture of thinking, discerning, praying, reading, responding, wisdom, studying, communicating, confronting, administering, comforting, responsibility, courage, frustration, joy, anger, darkness, light, attack, envisioning, victory, meeting, providing, conflicting, planning, inviting, disciplining, serving, second-guessing, apologizing, equipping, empathizing, defending, clarifying, training, being trained, giving, receiving, resting, motivating, entertaining, modeling, knowing, predicting, anticipating, waiting, charging, writing, loving, and that's just a small portion of the list. It's a whole variety of things that God places upon those of us that serve in leadership. Now, I love spending time with people in our church that work outside of vocational ministry. And I, I like to say, like, what, do you, what do you do? I genuinely ask, what do you actually do during the week? I'm, I'm curious what your job is like. And it's fascinating in a church like this how many areas of expertise there are. You know, people, people start talking about their jobs. I'm like, wow, I, <laughs> I have no idea that, that that was even a job. I have no expertise in that area at all. That's, that's pretty interesting. Tell me more. And I bow to their expertise because that's not my expertise. But one of the interesting dynamics in the church is because we all are part of the church and we all have some level of knowledge about what it means to be part of the church. It's possible in many churches for everyone to think that they're equal in terms of decision-making and leadership. And that's just not biblical. So we have people that come to church every week that think they know what it looks like to pastor a church. They've never pastored a church for one day in their lives. They've never served as an elder for one day in their lives. But they think they know how the church should operate. And in some churches, there's this sense of the tail wagging the dog, where those that come to church once a week think they can come and dictate and determine to the upper levels of leadership exactly how the church should function. Now, we, we at our church, we're very open to input from our congregation. And we download so much of the work of the ministry to others. In a church like ours with strong upper-tier leadership, what that actually means is that you don't have less opportunities to serve. It means you have more. Because we download all kinds of ministry to people. I don't even know half the stuff that's going on in the life of our church. Because so many people have been equipped to spend money, to make decisions, to lead, to teach, to envision, and so forth and so on. But on the upper levels of leadership, unfortunately, many people are like, well, I, I, th I think I know how to pastor a church. And they don't. And they, they misunderstand. They misunderstand decisions. They don't necessarily listen clearly to what the elders have said. They try to read between the lines. Now, in all of that, we're talking about church dynamics. The Bible says the leaders are called to admonish the church. And what often happens is when the leaders actually do that, admonish the church or lead the church, it creates what? Bitterness. It creates resentment. A lot of people don't like that. They don't want to be, quote unquote, told what to do. 
Now, you don't have to have apparently a full understanding of every decision in order to follow your leaders. The Bible doesn't qualify this at all. It just says that the leaders are called to lead and admonish the church and the people of God are called to follow. Look at the, look at the words used to describe the Christian's response to leadership. Respect, esteem very highly, love. So if you're a part of our church and you're not in a position of leadership, don't diminish leadership. You need leadership. This is how God has designed the church. The Bible also calls you to hold leaders in high regard. That means your default approach to leadership should be that of trust. Should be that of trust. Are, are there leaders, are there going to be leaders out there that blow it? Yeah. Are there going to be exceptions to the rule? Yeah. But your default towards leadership should be that of trust. You should be motivated by love for them. I've been in leadership for a long, long time. And I said this uh, several months ago in a sermon, and I had a person email me and react quite strongly to this, but I'll say it again because it's absolutely true and I don't hold any punches. If I had a dollar for every time I wanted to resign, I'd be a wealthy person. If I had a dollar for every time I wanted to resign, I'd be a wealthy person. Am I planning on it? No. But there are many times in leadership where as a human, I just think to myself, what am I doing? Like, why, why am I doing this? I'm going to go do something else. If that troubles you or rattles your cage, you're going to have to deal with that. Don't send me an email. But there's many times in the life of Christian ministry where you're like, why am I doing this? I'm inadequate. Or there is challenges. People are questioning my motive. People are accusing me of this and that. And it, and it weighs on you. And as a human being, at times you're like, I just, I just want to end it. I just want to get out of here. Now, if you, if you are aware of what's going on in the global church, it should concern you. Leaders are dropping like flies. They're dropping like flies. Many are discouraged. Many people are ill-equipped. Many of them are ill-equipped. Many are on the verge of... Here's one thing that's deeply disturbing. Increasingly, we're hearing of pastors committing suicide. Now, the response of the church to those high-profile pastors that are committing suicide is almost always inappropriate. They automatically go to mental health. They automatically go to issues of victimization. Let me just say this publicly. Suicide is always an absolute despicable sin. Suicide is a sin. There's no excuse for it. You should never consider it. If it's a temptation, you need to bring it to the Lord. You need to get some help from God's people. Suicide is a sin. There's never an excuse. We never excuse it away. We never rationalize it. It's a sin. But at the same time, we have pastors out there that are killing themselves, and it begs the question, why? Part of it is their own spiritual immaturity. Part of it is sin in their own lives. But from a human perspective, part of it is because they, for whatever reason, have come under such great pressure that many of them find themselves absolutely depressed and feeling like there's just nothing left. It's absolutely essential that the people of God understand this, that being in leadership is not as easy as it looks. It's not as easy as it looks. And the people of God need to pray for and support and build up and trust and love on their leaders. And by the way, I'm mildly awkward right now in my humanness. I'm mildly awkward right now because this can seem like a self-serving sermon. That's not the point. 
But I open my Bible and it happens to be the content of the text. So I have to preach it. And I'm not sharing this with you to sort of let you know that that's where I'm at. I'm actually encouraged in ministry right now. I'm just helping us to understand both in this generation and the one to come that the people of God, what does the text say? They need to highly esteem their leaders. If the leadership falls apart, the church crumbles. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very Christian. What about Jesus? Read your Bible. There's never a church in anywhere in the New Testament that's functioning that is an absence of leadership. God uses human leaders to lead his, churches, his church as under shepherds. These are very complex times with high expectations, and so we need to respect, esteem, and love on our leaders. Now look at this, the final statement, which applies to both leaders and followers. We are to live at peace. There will be good leaders, and there will be bad leaders. There will be good followers, and there will be bad followers. But what God's plan is, is for all of his people to live at peace. And what happens is if the first isn't in place or the second isn't in place, the leaders aren't doing what they're called to do or the followers aren't called to do, aren't doing what they're called to do, things fall apart. So if the leaders aren't working, aren't admonishing, aren't leading, the church falls apart. If God's people don't respect, esteem, love, the church falls apart. So these are vital things for us to consider. Both leaders and those that follow should strive for peace. This means that we need to exercise care in how we interact with one another. Be careful about what you post on social media for or against your leaders. I've seen it. I post something on social media. I'm the leader of this church. And someone posts some snarly comment. You don't do that on social media. That's disrespectful. To my role. You call me, you send me a message privately. You don't post something disrespectful about one of our elders on social media. It's not appropriate. You pick your timing. You don't attack your pastor or leaders five seconds after he's finished preaching his sermon. You know, wait till Tuesday. Don't sweat the small stuff. Pray for one another. So the first category, in order to keep the church healthy, we need to have a high view of leadership. Secondly, we need to be involved in discipling others. And this we must be passionate about. Look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Brothers, this is the second time the word brothers has come up in this text. The first time, it was referring to the church as a whole. So presumably it's the same here. This is a message not just for leaders. This is a message for everybody. So everybody, the brothers, the brothers and sisters alike, must be involved in the act of discipling others. So sometimes we have this notion of discipleship is for like the paid experts. It's for the clergy. That's what Aaron does. He disciples people and we show up and listen. No. We're all, all the brothers... All of the family is involved in reproducing disciples to the honor and glory of God. Now, there's many things you can deal with when you're discipling others, but here's four for whatever reason that happened to come up in the text. What do we do in the process of discipleship? We admonish the idle, meaning that we approach those that are lazy, that are not working, that are not serving Christ, that are not using their lives productively, and we say, that's not right. We seek to correct that kind of behavior. 
Secondly, if a person is faint-hearted, they're, they're discouraged, they're down in the dumps, as we say, we encourage them in the Lord. We speak truth into their lives, the hope and promises of God. Sarah picked a passage today. It's, it's one that I committed to memory a long time ago, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an encouragement. This is the kind of verse you present to people who are discouraged. You remind them of what God is doing and his promises and plans for them. And there are many others, of course. Uh, third, in discipleship, we help the weak. If you're weak in faith, we, we come alongside and we help to lift that person. We all have times in our lives where we're weak in the faith. We're just like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to worship right now. I don't feel like sharing my faith. Some might be thinking, I don't want to stay married. I, I, I don't know if I want to be generous and loving. No, I don't, I'm not feeling like it. And in discipleship, as we're living our lives with one another, we help the weak in their times of weakness. We lift them. Uh, third, we are patient with them all. Now, patience really is about committing yourself to relationships for the long haul. Committing yourself to relationships for the long haul. Some of the virtues in the Bible require time. Patience requires time. It's actually a time word. I was speaking with our staff this week, and uh, we just kind of went around, and I said, hey, what are two things that you really appreciate about ministry? There was 13 or 14 of us, and Pastor Jay said, you know, one of the things I really appreciate, he says, I've been in the church since 2004, is, is seeing people develop over the long haul, over the long haul. Now, you don't see that if you're in and out of a different church every 18 months or six weeks. But when you commit yourself to living your life among the same people for years and years and years, one of the blessings of that is you get to look back and not only to see little children, newborn babies become servants in the church, but you also see people whose lives were, were a shambles five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, develop and become more and more like Jesus. But this requires patience. And yeah, sometimes it's like, I want to give up on the church. I want to give up on that person. Or it's just not worth it. It's too much, too much of my time, too much of my energy. But when we commit to being patient with one another and thinking long-term, it's worth it. It's worth it. Consistently, it's better than spurts. Long distance is better than sprints. Our mission is to make disciples. And while the methods change, the principles remain the same. We preach the word of God, we baptize people, we teach them, we equip them. Those things never change. So a high view of leadership, discipling others. The third is this, love over vengeance. This is our posture. This is our disposition. Love over vengeance. Verse 15 reads, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Um, let's, let's do this. Um, could I assume that in church we can be honest? Can I assume that? Raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by other Christians. A few of you. The rest of you are brand new to church, right? <laughs> you've been hurt by other Christians. You know what? Being hurt by other Christians hurts more than being hurt by non-believers. Because our expectations are pretty low for non-believers most of the time, or at least they should be. 
I don't expect unbelievers to treat me charitably. I don't expect them to forgive me. I don't expect that. I don't expect them to take an interest in me or to pray for me. But I expect it of God's people, and you expect it of me, and we expect it of one another. And so as we get close to one another, there can be painful, painful times. Painful times where we perceive or literally are betrayed, where someone gossips about us or slanders us or screams in our face or misunderstands us or abandons us. We've all experienced this kind of thing in the church. It can be painful living your life among God's people. It can be really painful. And apparently this must have been a problem early on. Because the the Apostle Paul and his co-writers say to this church, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, which implies that sometimes Christians do evil to one another. Now you can avoid being hurt in the church if you remain absolutely disengaged. Unknown, uncommitted, just drift in and out, no skin in the game. You can avoid a lot of it. But how would that work in your marriage? Those of you that are married, how would that work? You know, one of the interesting things about marriage is we get married for love and for commitment and all these wonderful things. But by getting married, we also commit ourselves to a lifetime of vulnerability and a lot of moments of pain where we let each other down, where we hurt each other. And even in the moment of death, if one dies before the other. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands, but it's the story of C.S. Lewis who avoided marriage till he was well into his 50s because he was afraid of it. Finally, he gets married and shortly thereafter, his wife dies. And in the process of dying, he goes through this heart-wrenching doubt and anger with God for taking this woman that he loves so much away. But at the end of the movie, he he kind of makes this profound statement. He understands that the the pain now, the pain in the moment of loss that he was experiencing was part of the love then, that you can't have one without the other. You cannot love without being vulnerable. You cannot be in meaningful relationship without the possibility and the reality of pain. They go together like a horse and carriage. In a relationship, when you commit yourself to any relationship, to a church, to marriage, to a friendship, you are saying, I'm going to do my best to love you, but I'm also giving you permission to hurt me because I know it's going to happen. Life among God's people can be painful. We're all weak. We all have our flaws and errors, sin in our lives, misunderstanding. And so in order to govern our relationship, God says, hey, it's love over Vengeance, the natural tendency is to want to get people back. That's in our spiritual immaturity. It's like, well, you did this, I'm going to do this back. Oh, yeah? Well, you're a beep, fill in the blank. But here's what God tells us, and this is a reference to obviously the broader, broader ethic of Christian living towards others. In Romans chapter 12, verse 20, it actually goes so far as to say, feed your enemy. And then in that same verse, Paul quotes from an Old Testament passage in Proverbs 25, 22, 
where he talks about heaping burning coals upon the head of your enemy. Now that's an interesting like visual depiction. You're like, oh, I, I could get into that. You know, I, a few people have hurt me. I could get into that. You know, burn them, right? That's not what the passage means. In ancient times, they didn't have gas-fired furnaces and boilers and all this kind of thing. People would stay warm at night by having a fire, and it was important for the coals to stay lit. They could keep stoking the fire if the coals stayed lit. But you can imagine that at times the coals would extinguish themselves. So you would go to your neighbor's house and you would knock on the door and say, hey, you know, we're kind of cold over here. Could we, could we have some of your coals? And instead of saying, well, we don't have very many left. Mm, well, you can have one. The generous man takes a heap of coals and passes it on to his neighbor. This is what the passage means. To heap burning coals upon another person is to be generous in your forgiveness to be generous in your love, to be generous in your mercy, even to those that don't necessarily deserve it. This is the call of love over vengeance. In other words, disarm them with kindness. Disarm them with kindness. This doesn't mean you need to be silent forever or put up with people's abuse on and on and on, but your initial response to offense should be one of generosity, one of grace, one of kindness. Are you going to blow it in this area at times? Yeah. But at least make it a virtue so you can aim for this. So you understand, you know, God, I want my initial response to be one of grace. I want my initial response to be one of generous love. That's how, that's my posture. Maybe at some point down the road, we need to deal with the issue, the cause, the root source. But I want to heap burning coals upon people. I want to seek to do good. The fourth aspect of healthy biblical Christianity and church life is proper worship. We need to get our worship right. Look what it says in verse 16. Rejoice always. Did you rejoice today? You got a lot to rejoice for. Yeah, maybe you have a list of 10 things you wish were different about your life. But if you even have one thing that you're thankful for, you should be rejoicing in that. Pray without ceasing. An attitude of prayer, of communication with God should be ongoing in our lives. Give thanks in all circumstances. Lord, I don't like it, but I'm, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for what you're doing. I'm thankful that in your redemptive plan, yes, you even use pain to rouse a sleeping world. I'm thankful, Lord, that you use suffering and persecution to make me think more clearly. I'm thankful for that. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then it says, do not quench the spirit. Don't throw water on the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So basic postures of worship include rejoicing, prayer, and thanksgiving. And then we have this teaching about not quenching the spirit, and that's connected to not despising prophecies. Now, if you want to do a study on the place and role of spiritual gifts, the governing principles that govern the church, I would point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
But it's also possible as we think about the principles. So Paul there is teaching the church kind of about the boundaries and how the gifts should function in the life of the church. And there's boundaries there. But it's also possible to read passages like that and to overly govern the work of the Spirit in the church. Now, this is a, a strange thing for us to think about because we think of God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit all being sovereign. They, they, they're absolutely in control. They, they accomplish the purposes that they've determined. So how could, how could a human being quench the Spirit? How could I throw water on the Spirit? The Spirit is like an all-consuming fire. How could I? Well, apparently we can. In our lives, if we despise the Spirit, despise the manifestation of spiritual gifts, we can actually chase the Spirit out of our churches, so to speak. And what passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and this passage in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 teach us is to balance both testing. I'm not going to assume that every time something happens in the life of the church, it's necessarily the work of the Spirit. It could be, it could be the work of the devil himself trying to deceive the church. I test I exercise discernment. I exercise care. I follow the boundaries of scripture. But I never despise the work of the spirit. Now what I've seen in my spiritual journey is that the church tends to go one way or the other. Depending on the denomination, the history, the personalities in charge and so forth. And that much of the church, we have this, this part of the church is like afraid of the Holy Spirit. I, 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 I don't, I'm uncomfortable with anything that's like unexpected, anything new. I'm uncomfortable with emotion. I, I'm uncomfortable with discussions about discerning the will of the Lord. I'm, I'm uncomfortable about God healing people. I'm uncomfortable about God speaking truth, life-giving truth into the lives of his people. I, I'm uncomfortable with dynamism and and an ecstatic experience with God and emotion. I don't want any of that. So we have those that are on that side. And what I would suggest they're doing is they're quenching the Holy Spirit. They've despised the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And then we got another group over here that tests nothing. You know, I've had this experience that so must be the Spirit. Well, maybe you had bad pizza last night. Oh no, it's the Spirit. The Spirit told me. Yeah, but that's not what the Bible says. Yeah, but the Spirit told me. And the whole emphasis is upon the spirit, the work of the spirit, the, the emotional encounter. And there's very little discussion about the work of Christ or categories of truth. These, we tend to go one way or the other. And I think what passages like this are calling the church to is a place of balance. We invite the Holy Spirit to work in our church. We want the Holy Spirit to bless us and equip us and encourage us and rebuke us. We want the Holy Spirit to come. We have a sense of anticipation that he will come. We're open to the Spirit, but at the same time, we're not fixated on supernatural manifestations and discontent with the, just the normal humdrum work of God in our lives day by day. An example of this in modern thinking, I think, is reflected in our use of the word miracle. So if you think about it, what is a miracle? People say, oh, I just, I, we just had a little baby. It was a miracle. No, it wasn't. It's not a miracle. Having a baby is not a miracle. Why? It's the way God has designed things. God has designed things in such a way that when a man and woman come together, things happen. Babies are created. It's awesome, but it doesn't actually meet the definition of a miracle because it follows the laws and boundaries of biology and so forth. Now, a virgin birth is a miracle. 
That's a miracle. Um, it's not a miracle necessarily if my body attacks a virus or disease and the antibodies are formed and it, it fights it off. I'm thankful that the Lord is overseeing that, but that's not a miracle. But if my arm falls off and then it grows back, that's a miracle. So God is working in his church through natural means, and most of the time, God's going to work through natural means. That's the default. Most of the time, God's going to use our church, how committed we are, how articulate we are in preaching truth, whether we show up or not. He's going to use just normal means to bless us through the work of the Spirit, and we should be content with that. But at the same time, every now and again, God's going to break through and he's going to do a miracle among God's people. And we should rejoice in that. So if you're like, well, I'm only going to be a Christian if I get a miracle every day. You're probably not going to be a Christian for very long. But if you're like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm not into miracles, then you're going to have a problem with God. Because sometimes God's going to do miracles among his people. And so this is kind of like a both and thing. In our governing documents, we have what we call four pillars, unapologetic preaching and so forth. And one of them is called unashamed adoration. And under unashamed adoration, we have the verse John 4, 24. And John 4, 24 says that we're called to worship God in spirit and in truth. Again, that's a balancing verse. In spirit and in truth. We test, we do not despise. Now, where do these commitments lead us as God's people? Look at verse 23. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. What does the word sanctify mean? To be made holy, to be spiritually pure. So we do these things. We, we esteem our leaders and so forth. We uh, commit ourselves to proper worship and so forth. What is the result of this? Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it this is our eschatological goal we know that God is working in our lives to take us towards a, a time when we will be completely sanctified imagine that there will be a time when you will have no more doubts You'll never succumb to temptation again. You'll never lack insight. You'll never be depressed. You'll never be forgetful. You'll never be hateful, unloving. You'll be completely sanctified. And we believe that that is true. But in the meanwhile, to take us toward that goal, God is calling the church to engage in certain commitments. And here we've seen four of them today. And if we commit ourselves to those commitments, then God will continue to work in his church. And then we have a final to-do list, if you want to call it that, in verses 25 and following. Brothers, pray for us. So previously, pray without ceasing. Now he's, he's asking the church to pray for the apostles. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We'll just stand up right now and do that if you don't mind. If you could, uh... Or maybe one of these. Physical distancing. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Let me just say this. I am very, very, very uncomfortable with what we're doing in our church right now. You know that? I'm very uncomfortable with people having to sign up for church. 
I'm very uncomfortable with people having their temperatures taken. I'm very uncomfortable with not being able to shake your hand or give you a hug or for a select few to give you a holy kiss. Now, we are in strange times, and I've read the Old Testament, and I know that there were strange times back then. There were quarantine laws and so forth, where that which was normal was sometimes set aside for periods of time to mitigate against disease transmission and so forth and so on. So I think sometimes there's a biblical precedent to set aside that which is normal, but we should never become comfortable with that which is abnormal. This is abnormal. And we cannot stay here long term. It's wrong. And it becomes increasingly wrong if by weighing risk and reward, we can look into the eyes of someone who's crying or suffering and not embrace them. For some people, the only time they're ever touched by any other person is in church. Someone shakes their hand. Someone gives them a hug. They're, alone, they're lonely, they're isolated, and we are organic beings. And God uses hugs and kisses and handshakes and pats on the back to communicate the love of Christ. I'm uncomfortable with this. I want you to know that. And I'm going to tolerate it for a little bit longer. But we can't stay here long term as a community of faith. And here we have a passage in the scripture that's very clear That physical touch is part of ministry. It's actually a commandment here. By the way, if you're here and someone accidentally sticks out their hand or whatever, don't be like all weird about it, okay? Click, that's going on social media. No, it's not. Chill out a little bit. Touching each other physically in an appropriate way is part of Christian ministry. Jesus touched lepers, by the way. And he took his disciples along with him when they did it. Then verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. In other words, pass this truth along. You got to promise me the other churches will read this letter. Okay, we'll do it. I think the principle behind that is pass this truth along. Teach what we've taught today to others. Let them know about it. And then we have this promise, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And we're so thankful for that because as we exit today and we say, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to commit myself to the, the proper treatment of leadership. I'm going I'm to go out. I'm going I'm to make disciples. But sometimes I'll fail. Yeah, sometimes you'll fail. And I've failed many, many times. But I know this. The grace of God is with me. And one of the interesting things you should know if you're new to Christianity is that Christianity is unlike any other global religion. Now, other global religious leaders could stand up in their mosques, temples, synagogues, podiums and say the same thing. But let me just explain this very clearly, that Christianity is fundamentally founded in a radical notion of grace. That if you study the other world religions, and some of them have truth to them, But every other world religion, no matter what it is, at the end of the day boils down to you have to do something to appease God or the gods or whoever you're trying to encounter. You have to do certain things. And we used to say this when we were young. Many of you have probably heard this. If you're new to the church life, I'll I'll just 
throw this out. It sounds a bit cliche, but I think it's an important distinction. The difference between biblical Christianity and all other world religions is actually two letters. It's the difference between do and done. D-O and D-O-N-E. The basis of Christianity, biblical Christianity, not false Christianity, but biblical Christianity is the notion that God has accomplished something. He's done something for us. He's died in our place on our behalf so that we would be reconciled to God. Why? Because no amount of religious effort or religious commitment will ever perfect you. You know that if you've come from other religions, you know that. You got your list of things you're supposed to do, but you know how many times you failed to do them. You know you're a sinner. Can't deny it. You know you're a sinner. You know you're inadequate. We, we all innately know that. We might deny it. We try, we try to say, well, yeah, that person's worse than us. We all are born sinners. And so the idea that somehow, well, if I just do a lot of good things, maybe God will accept me is, is frankly ridiculous. So biblical Christianity is not about, well, just do a whole bunch of things and God will accept you. Biblical Christianity is based on grace. So even here to the church, after we're like, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. At the end of it, God wraps it up and says, the grace of God is going to be with you. Because that's what we need. Our lives are grounded and founded in grace. Without grace, we will fail miserably. And so let's pray that God would continue to be gracious to us and equip us to do that which he's called us to for his honor and for his glory alone.